ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. This is Dr. Michael Egner. I have the enormous pleasure of uh, having as my guest today uh, Steve Lofman. Steve is an engineer who has co-authored, along with Howard Glicksman, a book entitled Your Design Body, which is a fantastic book. I think it's the definitive book on intelligent design of um, human physiology. And it is my great privilege to have Steve with us today. Uh, it's good to be here, Mike. So, Steve, so tell me, uh, first of all, what, what led you and Howard to write this book? Well, the, uh, the funny answer is, uh, you know, we're not very smart. We dove into this project without really thinking about how much work it would be. The serious answer is that, so Howard had been writing on this subject for quite a while, and I was really intrigued by his perspective. And so I, um, I called him up. And I, um, well, I told him, you're, you're missing all the engineering things that in, in what you're doing. There's so much engineering in the human body. So I think if, if we were to sort of blend our two perspectives, this could be really interesting. There's probably a lot of material that would come from this. And I think it could make a very compelling case for the design of the body as opposed to the random accidents that supposedly constructed the body. So we we started about 5 years ago and uh, you know it has been a it's been quite an effort to get this uh, rolled together. How do you merge those two perspectives in a way that's readable? And uh what can, what do you leave in, what do you leave out? So uh it's been it's been a lot of uh effort and we think it's turned out pretty well. It's kind of funny because uh, in reading your book, and I, I recommend to our audience to please, <laughs> please get get the book. It's a fantastic book. I found that in my own research, which is on blood flow to the brain, that I had ended up using a lot more engineering than I did physiology. And my my bookshelves are full of uh, textbooks on engineering uh, that I applied to blood flow. So. Um, Howard and Steve's book really struck me as uh, particularly uh, appropriate and true. It's very, very important stuff. We can begin with what are the causal hurdles that any theory uh, of origins of human biology has to explain? Yeah, so that's that's sort of the core question. Uh, what what is it? What does it take to make a human body to for the human body to work? The engineering perspective is essentially a systems view. The human body has to solve what I think are the two hardest problems in the known universe. And they're they're not really different from other critters or anything else that's alive. But given that the human body is has broader and more capabilities than anything else that's alive, we chose the human body as as our example because these problems are at their very hardest for the human body. And and those two problems are number one, being alive. And number two is reproducing. If a human engineer could solve either of those problems, wealth and fame would follow beyond belief. Uh, these, these are incredibly difficult problems, and humans have no idea how to do these things. So we, we recognize the genius in the engineering, but we cannot approach it in our own efforts. So in the human body, you need to solve Oh, it's hard to know exactly, but maybe several hundred problems 
if you fail in any of those at any time, you are likely to die. Or uh, if you fail for very long, you're almost certain to die. So being alive requires ingenious engineering at the systems level all the time. And failure at any moment is probably fatal. So the causal hurdles are, how do you build these kinds of systems? What are the characteristics of these systems? These characteristics are inherent in the systems. And then how do you generate those systems in the first place? So causal hurdles are things like coherence. Mike Behe's book uh, in the 90s on Darwin's black box introduced this notion of irreducible complexity. But irreducibility is relatively easy compared to coherence. Coherence is many different parts with different capabilities, different strengths, different materials that all have to work together to achieve a function which none of the parts could ever achieve on its own. So your, your lawnmower is a coherent system. It has many, many parts, which all have to work exactly and specifically in certain ways, or the lawnmower doesn't mow the lawn. Uh, and then the, the next set of causal hurdles are interdependencies. How do you build a respiratory system without the lungs? How do you build the lungs without the heart, or the cardiovascular system? How do you build a blood pressure that drives sufficient blood to the brain if you don't have an oxygen sensor to tell your system how much blood it needs? There are so many interdependencies, and I guess we could even call some of them self-dependencies. So the cells in your cardiovascular system need the cardiovascular system in order to be alive. So those, those things are causally difficult to achieve. Engineers know that, that you can't deliver a car to a customer with no steering wheel and, and two wheels instead of four. You know, you have to have all the parts there or it's not whole, it's not, it's not functional. And that is, is hard to do. In, in a sense, you, you might say that it's, it's a kind of macroscopic irreducible complexity that what Mike Behe wrote about mainly was irreducible complexity at the molecular level. And that principle applies to much larger scales. Yes, but it's it, there's an additional principle to coherence, and that is that the parts have to be just right. So uh, we actually have a colleague who published a three-paper series on the complexity in the specifications for the bacterial flagellum. The same guy had done a specification for Mike Behe's mousetrap. It's five parts, but it took 12 pages to specify how those parts are manufactured, assembled, the specification for the metal in the spring, the timeline in which the, the thing has to work. There are so many variables in how this thing needs to work. If, it, if it's going to achieve function, it has to get all those things right. And that's true in the body, only at a much uh, greater level of complexity. Can, can the laws of nature explain this? That is, that if you take the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, uh, and can you provide an adequate explanation for how these intercoordinated systems came about just based on the laws of nature? Uh, well, I don't think so. I, in fact, it may be possible with just blind, random chance, but it it can't be done gradually. 
if you have to be alive at each step along the way. Right. So, how do you control the salt in your system without a salt control system? Right. There are hundreds of problems like that. So, you pretty much have to solve a large number of them at once. And that, uh, while the probabilities are astronomical, beyond, beyond human comprehension, but I guess it's theoretically possible, but it's not theoretically possible to achieve it gradually. You've written about several different characteristics that are necessary for life. And if you wanted to elaborate a little bit on each of them, for example, specialization, in what way is specialization uh, essential for... Uh, right. So, we, we know just because each of us has a body, we, we kind of get this, though we may not think about it much. The shape of the bones where they meet together in your knee has to be precise. Or the shape of the bones in your middle ear, the three bones that, that make up your middle ear are, A, they're really small, and B, they have very complex three-dimensional shape. Without those exact shapes, you would not be able to hear. That's specialization. You also have specialization of materials. There's enamel on your teeth. Where does that come from? And why is it only on your teeth? You have transparent tissue in the optical axis for your eyes, but there's no transparent tissue anywhere else in your body. Your body seems to have just the right materials in just the right places with just the right shapes doing just the right jobs. And that's you know, that the more you think about that, and we have, you know, roughly 18 chapters where we talk about things like this, and, and those things are extremely difficult to achieve, even if you want to achieve them, if you have a plan. How in the world you could do that by accident with no plan, no foresight? It's just beyond belief. Engineers have a lot of trouble with thinking accidents can do stuff like this because we know how much work it takes to do this. Yeah, it's funny that I think of, of all of the scientists with whom I've dealt on issues of intelligent design, I think engineers are among the most open to intelligent design, I, I think because they realize the, the difficulties of um, obtaining a functioning system without intelligence. In terms of organization, uh, you and Howard have written about the rule of composition. What is that? So, this is a standard design process or procedure. So, when engineers are building a system, they compose it of parts. And a lot of times, those parts are reusable from other systems. So, we, we all know nuts and bolts come in, in standardized sizes and shapes. You have different kinds of screw heads or different sizes of threads. Those are pretty much standard. You can build your lawnmower out of parts, uh, some of the parts at least, that uh, you can get at the local home parts store. Others are very, very specialized for their function, but it's the composition of those parts that makes the outcome that you desire. If you're building an Atlas rocket, you're going to need a bunch of parts, but they're interchangeable. You've, you've designed those parts to be modular and interchangeable. So, that gives you the ability to reuse things. I'm a software guy by profession, and uh, composition is how we do everything. You have a library of software subroutines that you use. So, you have math subroutines, you might have engineering subroutines or physics subroutines. 
and you just call these functions and you assemble those functions to build the program that you want to achieve the outcome that you want from that program. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Um, and you, you speak of integration also as, as a critical factor in designing the body. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, integration is, is this notion of the parts working together. So there's mechanical integration, there's electrical or chemical integration, and then there's the, the integration that I've worked with most of my career is information integration. So I need to be able to send a signal from something at point A to something at point B. That can be a, a something as simple as an on-off kind of a signal to something as complicated as a, a document. It could be very complex uh, information. And the body has all these things. So it has the integration of mechanical parts. It has the integration of chemistry between different parts. Uh, it has integration that's electrical. Your body is sending electrical signals from point A to point B, and those those signals have specific meaning. The sender of that signal needs to know how the receiver of the signal is going to interpret that, and so it adjusts that signal to achieve the right outcome. And then you have a massive information transfer, certainly in the cell, where you're moving RNAs around from point to point. So all of the above is present in the body. And you speak as well of coordination, and it, it seems to me that that is kind of a choreography or an orchestration of the entire system. How does that work? So, yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. You can think of it as sort of a runtime thing. So, when your body's working, say you're sitting on a chair resting, and something happens and you want to jump up and run, you know, the water starts leaking out of the dishwasher and you, you jump up to run over there. Well, you need to adjust and you need to adjust very quickly the way that your blood pressure it sends blood to all of your body systems. As your arms or your legs start working, they need more blood and you have to be able to adjust that in real time. That is a, an orchestration kind of process. You've got to turn up the blood pressure. You've got to direct the blood to the right place. You've got to get more oxygen from the environment, from the air, and you've got to get rid of more carbon dioxide. There's a lot of activity going on and it all has to happen in the right place, at the right time, in the right quantity, and typically uses multiple systems. So orchestration for speeding up your heart rate is very different from the orchestration that slows your heart rate down. So you have what we call the push-pull principle. You have one system to increase your heart rate. You have a whole different system to decrease your heart rate. You have one muscle or a set of muscles to extend your arm from your body. You have another set of muscles to pull it back. So it's the push-pull thing you need. That's irreducible. If you could push your arm out but not retract it, it wouldn't be much good. It seems to me, and I've, I've thought a lot about this regarding my own research, which is in my own work, I've found that the principles that you're describing are, are very true and are kind of the core of, of how the blood flow to the brain works. I've come to think of it the, the process of understanding it as just reverse engineering, that we've been shown a system whose origins we don't fully understand and uh, whose mechanism of action we don't fully understand. And we have to reverse engineer it, just as if we found a funny machine in our backyard and had to figure out how it worked. 
do you, do you think that biologists and medical researchers should be required to learn basic engineering principles as part of their education? That's something I've thought about for a while. Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of our colleagues uh, is working on a textbook, an engineering textbook for biologists. So great. hopefully at some point in the future, that will become available because I, I just don't think they can understand what they're looking at if they don't understand the engineering design of systems. Well, if, if, if a biologist or a medical researcher isn't doing some kind of reverse engineering, I don't see how he's doing science. I mean, everything in understanding how the body works or how cells work or how molecules is some kind of reverse engineering. Uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, the difference is that they train in biology. They, they don't have any experience in what it takes to design something new. Right. And so when they see something they've never seen before, they don't understand what the complexity is that they're really looking at. And that's one of the things we try to address in this book is this notion of here's the set of questions. When you see something like this, here's the questions you should be asking. If you're not asking the right questions, it's possible that your research will go off in some strange direction and never get to the right answer. So we think this new theory will help researchers focus on the right questions, and which should help produce better results in less time. So, something I've noticed in talking with scientific colleagues who, who don't come at this from an intelligent design perspective is that when I ask them, well, how did all this come about? I mean, all, all these amazing interconnected and interdependent systems come to be. Generally, I get a wave of the hand and, oh, it, uh, it evolved by natural selection. And when I ask them exactly how does that work, they generally can't tell me. <laughs> it's kind of a promissory sort of thing. So how would a neo-Darwinist try to explain these systems? And does the neo-Darwinian explanation work? Does it adequately explain these things? That's, that's really probably the heart of the questions that we ask. How could it, it do this? Is, is it even possible? And to my knowledge, nobody has ever addressed any of the systems that we talk about uh, or the causal hurdles presented by these systems in any detailed way at any level for any system in the body. I mean, obviously, you have layers of systems from the molecular level through the cells, through the organs, and up into the whole body systems. And even the same principles even apply in human human ecosystems or human societies. So you have to solve these problems at all, the, all those different levels. Sometimes the same problems need different solutions at different levels in this design hierarchy. And that's something that's not been addressed at all. In fact, Mike Behe has told me once not too long ago that nobody's really responded in any significant or detailed way about his irreducibility observation. Right. This is way beyond irreducibility, and I just don't think they have any answers. So they have to wave their hands. They have to appeal to authority. Uh, they essentially say, trust us, we're scientists. We don't know yet, but sooner or later, we'll figure it out. And, and we're trying to say that this is not a quantitative issue that we'll just learn more over time. This is a qualitative issue. It's like driving from the U.S. to England. You know, it's it, it it's a qual <laughs> it's a qualitative problem. You can't you can't do it. Right, right, right. Yeah, the the uh, Darwinist answer 
to these incredible dilemmas that, that you're talking about here, the initial answer is to wave their hand and say, well, it's natural selection. And then if you point out to them that that is a really insufficient explanation for these systems, they then try to silence you. It can get fairly nasty, actually, and people have lost their careers just over asking questions like this with too much vigor. Yeah, well, that's, uh, this is a known problem. What we're really touching on here is worldviews, and people can be very reluctant to reexamine their own worldviews. People from all sides faced with new data will tend to circle the wagons. It's just a human foible, I think. So we're definitely swimming upstream with this work. Yeah, except that you've got all the facts on your side. <laughs> well, yeah, it, certainly culturally swimming upstream, but the evidence is totally on the ID side. On yeah, this. yeah. We, our view is that in the end, the truth gets to win. Yeah, science yeah. science is about finding truth. Eventually, science will come around. I'm, I'm not sure how long it'll take. I'm not going to make any predictions, but it's pretty clear to people who d- design things for a living that living requires an amazing amount of design. In fact, just the mathematics to do protein folds, for goodness sakes, is beyond human capability. I mean, we can design some proteins, but not on the scale that's required for life. It's, it's absolutely amazing stuff. I was a biochemistry major in college, and I knew I wanted to go to medical school, but I, I, I would have considered a career in research in biochemistry. This was when I was a Darwinist. But I, I must say that looking at all these systems, I was uh, class after class, I was left with this haunting feeling of, well, how does all this get put together? How do you make all this work in, 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 a, in, an, in an orchestrated way? And my professors had no answers at all. And it, it really kind of moved me away from, from, from doing biochemistry research because I felt that there were huge questions that were not answered, and I didn't see any way to answer them within the Darwinian paradigm. That it just didn't make any sense. And I think for a lot of people in that, in that world, it's just better to not ask the questions. Right. Well, it has been a pleasure and a privilege to have you as our guest. And to our listeners, Steve Loffman and Howard Glicksman have a wonderful book called Your Designed Body. I think it is the definitive book on understanding intelligent design of human physiology. It's a fascinating book. I I loved it, and I encourage our listeners to get it and to read it. It's a wonderful book. And uh, thank you so much, Steve. You're welcome. Good to be here. Thanks. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.